If you still have a copy of that Evangelism Explosion book by D. James Kennedy, there's a section in there called Handling Objections. And then in there, D. James Kennedy used an illustration in which the gospel of justification by faith alone is pictured as a damsel in distress. She is beset by enemies on two sides. On one side are bandits of legalism. On the other side are fiends of licentiousness. Now, Kennedy meant to contrast James and Paul fighting for the one and the same gospel on opposite sides. But if you just read Paul's letters by themselves, you can say that he's really battling both legalism and licentiousness. Galatians is one of those letters that tell us about that. And we're in that third section where Paul gets practical and defends our freedom in the gospel. In the first half of chapter 5, he came out swinging like a boxer ready to subdue his opponent. He warned, he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. He wasn't afraid to hit below the belt, if you catch my drift. He said, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. The enemies might retaliate and say to Paul, if you keep talking about liberty and grace all the time, you're going to encourage your disciples to sin. The best ingredient for moral life is some leaven of legalism added to grace. To that, Paul would vehemently disagree. The gospel is about liberty in the spirit, not libertinism in the flesh. Elsewhere, Paul takes an entire chapter, Romans 6, to assert this truth. He asks and answers himself, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. And just as he did with the Romans, Paul turns to the Galatians to explain the true meaning of gospel liberty. And he's going to pack a lot of doctrine in small space, but then he'll unpack a lot of practical applications as well. So let's read Galatians 5, 13 to 26. If you're using your pew Bible, you'll find Galatians 5, 13 to 26 in page 813. Galatians 5, 13 to 26. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, 
which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul begins verse 13 with the words, For you. That's how he transitions for, from his cutting remarks against the Judaizers to the exhortations for the Galatians. And he starts with the theological truth. You, brethren, have been called to liberty. Saints have been called into the grace of Christ to the true gospel of freedom. Meanwhile, the troublemakers are perverting it and persuading believers to accept a different gospel. But the real good news of Jesus gives us real freedom. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And this freedom in Christ, properly defined, is not freedom to be silly or willy-nilly. If we say that we're free in Christ to do whatever we want, we're misreading the Bible. We're reading it out of context. There's a definite shape to the gospel and the gospel liberty. And we must know what that shape is. So Paul gives us three exhortations I would say three key exhortations. The first one's towards the end of verse 13. Serve one another. The second's at verse 16. Walk in the Spirit. Finally, there's a similar but different word in verse 25. Let us also walk in the Spirit. And building on those, I observe three features of Christian freedom. One. Christian freedom is loving service of others. Christian freedom is loving service of others. That's verses 13 to 15. Two, Christian freedom is the spirit-led denial of the flesh. That's the big section in the middle. Christian freedom is the spirit-led denial of the flesh. That's verses 16 to 24. And three, Christian freedom is spirit alignment, not self-exaltation. Christian freedom is spirit alignment, not self-exaltation. That's verses 25 to 26. You could just even cut it down shorter by saying Christian freedom is about serving, it's about fighting, it's about aligning. First, Christian freedom's loving service of others. So I'm going to take this principle in two parts, service and love. First, service. And, you know, one of the lines of our church statement of faith goes like this. 
and it's about the truth of salvation. We believe that the only way to be saved from the penalty of sin, which is eternal condemnation, is by faith in this blood sacrifice, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that of those who thus become his sheep, he says, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. So I love that quote of John 10:28 at the end. That's the verse that gave me assurance of salvation as a teenager struggling with doubts. I felt so free. I learned to rest on God's grace. But there are times when I'm tempted to take God's grace for granted. There's a wickedness in my sin nature that whispers, I can indulge in sin because I'm already forgiven. There's a temptation to take sin lightly and take God lightly. Taking someone for granted, isn't that the struggle in all our closest relationships? Our spouses, our parents, our siblings. They're always there, so we treat them like wallflowers. But next time you think about taking God for granted, next time you're tempted to use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, know that God has made a way of escape that you may bear such temptation. The way out in this passage is this. Serve fellow believers regularly. Such service is one of those one another's of the New Testament. Committed membership at a local church puts us in a position to serve others. Martin Luther has a memorable quote on this topic. He wrote, quote, A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject of all, subject to all. So Luther means that on one hand, we're adult sons, full heirs, freely given all things, and all are ours through Jesus. Yet such privilege does not contradict, preclude our calling to serve our neighbors. Now let's talk about love. Love must be the motivation for our service. Through love, serve one another. It's not legalism that empowers our ministries. It's not something done to our flesh or in our flesh that drives us or should drive us. We saw back in chapter, uh, verse 6, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. Here's why love is better than legalism. Uh, we go on to verse 14 and see that with love as the proper motivation for service, one actually fulfills the law. Paul cites from Leviticus 19.18, but got this idea from Jesus, our Lord. Our Lord taught us that this command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is second only to the first and greatest command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, you may want me to slow down here and then ask, what exactly is love? And I can't go on with this passage until 
we properly define it. That's because love is one of those words that are subject to differing interpretations. Some see love as a feeling that comes and goes. Some say love has no boundaries of gender or number. But how about we let God tell us what love is? I mean, after all, the scriptures tell us that God is love in 1 John 4, 8. And then two verses down in verse 10 in 1 John 4, we read this. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that leads us to more questions. What is propitiation? What does it have to do with love? Propitiation is payment, atonement for sin, to appease the wrath of God. When we speak of justice, human or divine, we often use words of transaction. We see in the news how one pays for his or her crimes. We see in the Bible that the wages of sin is death. Sin is bigger than we think, and in fact, the greatest problem of mankind. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is also broader than we might think. So if you look at the list in verses 19 to 21, not only are there external and obvious sins like fornications and murders, you see hatred, jealousies, selfish ambitions, and envy. Some sins are internal, under the surface, and less obvious. But any and all of these would disqualify us from heaven. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But God's not only angry with sin, he made a way for us to be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ. Where we fail to love, serve others, and fulfill the law, God became man and did all that for us. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He lived a perfect life and gave it up as a payment for our sins, as our substitute. Christ has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. After paying for our sins on the cross, Jesus was buried and rose from the grave on the third day. He ascended to heaven after giving ample proofs of his resurrection and the work of redemption he has accomplished. There's nothing left for us to do except repent and believe. That means we turn from our sins and ourselves and we turn to Christ in faith for righteousness. God offers eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the gospel. Tells us what love is. In a word, God's son emptied himself as God's holy servant to fulfill the law through love. And Christ was so secure in his love and identity that he could love even his enemies and identify with us. Our Lord demonstrated how true freedom is loving service of others. 
And like him, if we're secure, and secure in our Christian identity, we won't be insecure about being servants. So now, back to Galatians 5. If Christ is the perfect model and picture of loving service, if Christ-likeness edifies and stimulates growth, there's an opposite picture in verse 15. The flesh and self-centeredness look like a pack of wild animals biting and devouring and consuming each other. Our church community must look different. We should look like the animals of the millennial kingdom, the wolf dwelling with the lamb, the leopard lying down with the goat, the calf and the lion. But you might say to me, that's later when Jesus returns. There's no way we can avoid division and quarrels in the body now. True. Not completely, right? We're not sinless. There is as much perfection in congregations as there are perfections in individuals. Yet Paul doesn't just throw up his hands in the air and resign to our fate. We can do something now. He goes on to teach us how Christian freedom is a spirit-led denial of the flesh. So we come to the big middle chunk of today's passage. Honestly, the two lists in the, from verses 19 to 23 could be the basis for an entirely separate sermon series. But today, let's not lose sight of the big picture. So we start with the verses that frame that core. Paul transitions from verse 15 with some emphasis, I say then, just as he did back in chapter 4, verse 1. He's building on what he has said and moving on to his next major argument. If we want to avoid the terrible destruction of the flesh in verse 15, we must walk in the spirit. That way we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. To walk simply means to live. As for the spirit and the flesh, I remind you that these two do not mix. They do not cooperate. Paul already introduced this idea in the past two chapters. In chapter 3, verse 3, he said, Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? In chapter 4, verse 29, As he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, even so it is now. You can't rely on both the Spirit and the flesh not for your personal spiritual life, and not for our interpersonal social life either. You must choose a side. Option one, we live according to the flesh, frustrated serving the law of sin, unable to find justification by works of the law. We do not do the things we wish to do. Our conscience bears witness of our guilt. But there's a better way. Option two, if we're led by the Spirit, we are no longer under the curse of the law. Now, what does the life of the Spirit look like? It doesn't look like what you see in verses 19 to 21. It does look like what you see in verses 22 to 23. 
But before I talk about the first list of vices there, the works of the flesh, skip down to verse 24. And it says there, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. This is not dying to self with Christ at the moment of salvation. Based on the context, I believe this describes the ongoing process of a believer growing in holiness. Like I said, Christian freedom is a spirit-led, ongoing denial of the flesh. Paul talks about this elsewhere. Romans 8.13 says, If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Colossians 3.5-7, Put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you, you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Paul's talking about the same process in these passages. The deeds of the body, the members which are on the earth, are synonymous with the passions and desires of the flesh. Our mission is to wage war against the fleshly lusts, which war against our souls. The Puritan John Owen, in his classic book, Mortification of Sin, some encouragement for us. Quote, Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Seize not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Let not man think he makes any progress in holiness who walks not over the bellies of his lusts. End quote. When we walk by the Spirit, we walk over the bellies of our lusts, and we put our feet on the necks of our enemies. So we have the objective, and we have the weapon. Now we have the specific targets in verses 19 to 21. And two general thoughts about the list before I go on. First, I don't think Paul meant this to be an exhaustive list of every single possible sin there is in this universe. He says in the middle of verse 21, and the like. There's a lot more where that came from in the inner treasury of the evil man. Secondly, staying in verse 21 and towards the end of it, there's a chilling reminder. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, to be clear, Paul's not saying that Christians will never mess up. No believer is perfect on this side of eternity. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, actually, and the truth is not in us. Instead, Paul's discussing here habitual and continual sin without any hint of repentance. He's talking about a lifestyle of walking in darkness. If you observe none of the fruit of the Spirit in a professing Christian, there are reasons to doubt whether he or she is saved. A true Christian lives in true freedom. He or she is led by the Spirit and denies the flesh. Finally, we can talk about the list, and I'm not going to talk about each and every item. Just a select few. 
And remember, the main point here is that the works of the flesh are evident or obvious, and obviously in contrast to the spirit. So in verse 19, let's focus on fornication. Fornication is broader than adultery. It includes any sexual activity outside of biblical marriage. So that would include one-night affairs, sleeping with the boyfriend or girlfriend, and homosexual intimacy. A disturbing trend these days is that more and more professing evangelicals justify cohabitation and sexual intimacy. They're saying as long as the wedding date's around the corner, it's okay, just move in together. What's the big deal? But that's fornication, the work of the flesh. Let's talk about sorcery in verse 20. The fact that sorcery follows idolatry in the list should not surprise us. Magic, witchcraft, and soothsaying are part and parcel of pagan religions. But what may not be so obvious is the involvement of drugs in sorcery. The word for sorcery in the original language is pharmakeia. Yes, pharmakeia does sound like pharmacy of today, right? But obviously they're not one and the same. We have FDA and laws in place to administer drugs in responsible way for medical reasons. But sorcery has to do with drug abuse and what do they call it? Trips, right? Spiritual experiences. This past week, there was a story about a famous professional football player named Aaron Rodgers. Um, he plays quarterback for the Green Bay Packers in Wisconsin. He recently confessed on a podcast that the use of psychedelic drugs helped him in his athletic performance. He also claimed they helped him love himself and love others unconditionally. The drug he used is categorized as Schedule One, listed with LSD, cannabis, and ecstasy. It's also connected to the religious rituals of South America. Now, what's alarming about all this is that we're not talking about hippies or addicts on the streets. We're, talking about a, we're not talking about a secret society of witches or the occult. We're talking about a world-class athlete, a Super Bowl champion and four-time most valuable player. He's promoting psychedelic drugs and self-improvement. The lure of drugs and mystical religions have never been stronger. But it's nothing new under the sun. It's sorcery, the work of the flesh. One more at the end of verse 20. Heresies. Heresies certainly include false teachings. But it also refers to divisions and factions caused by favoritism. Social economic divisions, cliques, as we observe in the Corinthian church. We must kill this work of flesh among us and come together in the gospel. Let us pursue things which make for peace and the things by which one may edify one another. We must avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. These are heresies among the works of the flesh. 
Again, big picture, Christian freedom is the spirit-led denial of the flesh. Where there is no such denial, there is no great revival. Just as he did when he first met them, Paul warns the Galatians in verse 21 that those who live according to the flesh without repentance will not enter heaven. Now, if such vices characterize those outside of heaven, there's also virtues that characterize those who belong to heaven. Paul says in Romans 14, 17, that the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's a similar idea here in Galatians 5, 20 to 23. We find assurance that we belong to heaven if the fruit of the Spirit belongs to us. So I'm just going to talk about two of the nine, the first and the last ones. First, there is love. It was connected to faith in verse 6 and service in verse 13. If we put it all together, faith gets us the Holy Spirit. The Spirit produces love, and love empowers service. And at the end of the list is self-control, and I admit, I think it's, I find it challenging to trust in the Spirit for self-control. I'm used to willpower, you know, rules, regulations, and habits. I often don't pray enough. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit for discipline and restraint. I need your help for self-control in every area of life. Now, I'm not against diet plans, accountability partners, or computer programs that report your website browsing history. But those are means. Walking in the Spirit is a relationship. It's not legalism. The Spirit-led life is better than legalism in producing holiness. If we're led by the Spirit, we're not under the law, first of all. And also, if we're led by the Spirit, we're not against the law either. And to live in the Spirit, we must be in tune and in lockstep with the Holy Spirit. And that leads us to the third and final feature of Christian freedom. Christian freedom is spirit alignment, not self-exaltation. I'm not going to be long on this point, just a few words here. So verse 25 looks similar to verse 16, but the word walk is different. The walk here is not that of a pedestrian. Imagine in your head soldiers marching in a row. If we keep in step with the Spirit, we won't be so concerned about keeping up with the Joneses. If we look to the Spirit at the head of the line, we won't look to others to get ahead in life. Spirit alignment prevents us from aligning ourselves to the shifting standards of the world. If we go down that path of worldliness, we see in verse 26 how we become vain, stirring up anger, filled with jealousy. Imagine instead what would happen if we all walk united and in lockstep with the Holy Spirit. 
There's a story I read earlier this year about a bridge in England called Brockton Suspension Bridge. On April 12, 1831, it collapsed, and here's what happened that day. And this has to do with like math and science, but I sort of thought about it from a illustration point of view. The 60th Rifle Corps carried out an exercise under their lieutenant, and as they walked in step over the bridge, and they're going to walk in cadence, in unity, they felt a vibration in sync with their footstep. Then one of the iron columns supporting the suspension chains fell towards the bridge. The corner no longer supported, then fell into the river, throwing about 40 of the soldiers into the water or against the chains. Thankfully, no one died, but there were some injuries. Now, it wasn't, this was, story wasn't just about architecture of bridges. It was about math and all these things, but I see it right as a demonstration of how powerful a united group walking in lockstep could be. When each of us and each and every one of us are aligned to the spirit, not exalting ourselves, we will do great things for the Lord. But before we go out and do great things together and walk in the Spirit, I think we can do uh, something great here as we gather together. And what better way to express our shared life in the Spirit than sharing the Lord's Supper? So let's remember the cost of our freedom, what Christ has done for us, to buy us freedom, and the Spirit that he has granted us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Lord, we thank you for the spirit that was given to us through faith. Lord, we thank you that we're in this battle and we don't have um, just the means to fight this battle, but we have, we have you. We have your presence in our lives to battle the tempter and the flesh. Lord, we pray that we'll be able to overcome by the power of the spirit as we walk in the Spirit, as we align ourselves to him. And Lord, give us the motivation, the proper motivation of love to serve one another. We thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.